I think Donald just criticized me for preparing for this debate. And yes, I did. And you know what else I prepared for? I prepared to be president. Look, it's all words, it's all sound bites. I built an unbelievable company, but I take advantage of the laws of the nation. Good morning and good God. This is Paula Dix, a last minute book report about the U.S. presidential election coming to you on tape delay from two independent gambling armadas floating outside U.S. and New Zealand territorial waters. I am Jeb Lund, your co-host, and with me as last time is the illimitable Kiwi comic and raconteur, Tim Bat. I'm so excited to hear where this language goes by the end of this short run of podcast, Jeb. That was super impressive. A gambling armada? I love it. That's great. I feel like I'm in Macau. <laughs> that was my idea, is what I would like um, for every episode henceforth, is that um, the read-on gets more tortured Mm-hmm. and interminable and then the credits go well i'd like to think that for most people we are the voice of the people we are the vox populi so it is that we're mirroring the mood of increasing despair and chaos leading into ultimate relief and then we'll disappear much like the concerns of everyone and uh after this first debate which we've we've just watched seems like we're on track yeah, I mean, we you know we're one third of the way there. I think only the only things that happen are that they speak officially near each other three times, and then the election happens, and then that solves everything. I hope that's in the Constitution. I don't actually read it. I'm I'm from the left. We we pretty much just tear it up in strips. You use it as toilet paper as your use for the Constitution. Um, Jeb, tell me <laughs> tell me about the conditions. Who were you with? What were you doing? How much did you have to drink? Uh, I did. Uh, I did none of that. I um. I had to work, so I spent the afternoon uh, pretty much at lunch. I turned on uh, CNN and MSNBC and did a picture-in-picture picture and then skipped over to Fox a little bit. Uh, and then it, that that stayed on for about 14 hours. And then at about 2 in the morning, I wrote a column and then filed it and went to sleep and then woke up three hours later. So it's... Oh, man, my way was way more fun. I was by myself, but I was in my studio and I bought a six pack of beers and I got through most of it, actually, during the course of the debate, which is terrifying. So by the end, I was reasonably sloshed. I had a bong on hand if things got really bad and um, a very sharp knife uh, next to me if things got truly catastrophic as well. But I was pleasantly surprised. Um, what a what a great debate. What a mass debate. I want to throw, first of all, some numbers before we get into the nitty gritty. 80.6 million people was the previous record. That was in 1980. That was the number to beat Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan for their first and only presidential debate that they had. This one managed to get 84 million people, uh, and that's just from the TV networks that were carrying it. So I think there's 13 different networks carrying it. So that doesn't include uh, the internet streams, of which there were several million, uh, or C-SPAN people. <laughs> of which there was probably ones and ones of viewers that didn't get put into that Nielsen uh, final result. Uh, why, why does C, sorry, C-SPAN not count? And th- this is weird it, to me. Is it because it's run as a public trust so it doesn't get ratings? Correct, yeah. Well, I'm guessing okay. anyway, um, if it's the same sort of th- principles that we have in New Zealand, like our state broadcaster on the radio um, doesn't get counted in any of the radio sur- surveys because there's no point. They're not selling ads, so they don't get they don't participate in it. So I'm guessing it's the same thing. Oh, that makes sense. I, yeah. I was going to say, because I, I know a lot of people who watch it because it is relatively serene by comparison. Yeah. So if you, if you can get like a network broadcast or a C-SPAN broadcast, 
Um, I know a lot of people will do that just because on the C-SPAN broadcast there won't be like graphics everywhere. Well, yeah, or you might you won't like hear the president talk about or somebody who wants to be the president talking about the hundreds of thousands of people they will maybe slaughter in the Middle East and then a fade out and then suddenly I'm a Ford truck man. That's all I drive. <laughs> and like you're just oh my god, why? This is, a, this is a bit much. This is a bit on the nose, CNN. Yeah. So um well the and then people also I, I noticed that last night too was uh on Twitter there were a lot of people encouraging like please go watch this on PBS and support your your PBS affiliate because that's the least obnoxious thing. Although in Patton Oswald, I think uh who is turned into a really peculiar political person said something about how we need to watch it on PBS because everyone else enabled Donald Trump and they must pay. <laughs> He's grieving. It, it's okay. He's grieving. That's it's true. That's true. Um, so look, d- d- what was, d- I'll give my, I'll give some hot takes. I'm going to throw some hot takes at your face, Jeb, and then um, you'll likely either correct or more likely uh, agree with me. Um, All right. Firstly, I want to say Lester Holt did a great job. I was very impressed by his non-interventionist approach. I know that he pissed off people on either side um, by being very quiet, particularly at the beginning of the debate. And uh, all the the Trump supporters were feeling butthurt because um, ultimately nothing really came up about uh, Benghazi or the emails, which I think was the right call. Um, Hillary did a great job of diffusing that when it came up, like the one time basically just said, yep, I absolutely goofed. I apologize for that. I own it. I'm not going to make any excuses. And you could count the beats because Trump didn't quite know where to go until he picked up that line of uh, it was more than a mistake. It was purposeful. Um, so that was that was nice. She handled it well. I thought Lester handled it well. And I, I just think he did such a great job. Didn't hear from him until he launched the um, tax return question. That was like the first peep you heard out of him from the night. And I said on Twitter that uh, he was like a predator drone moderator. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. And I was actually going to ask you something uh, because I had a certain American sports analogy. And this is, of course, an international broadcast. We are listened, in, listened to in um, the country you live in and the country I live in because that's where our moms are. You can say New Zealand. It won't hurt you. No, no, but uh, I figure, you know, your listeners, I I would like to ask for help with a soccer analogy, which, uh, as you know, is what it should be called in the rest of the world. Um, Like, when he didn't intervene, I kind of thought that that set the tone for, you know, these people can't eat into the allotted time by constantly appealing and going, Lester, 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 right? Because yeah. if you're the the ref and you automatically just accede to you know the you know they they just immediately flop and you know like oh you know Clinton stepped on my Achilles yeah and uh, you know if they if they they go in and intervene right then then they're stuck doing that for the whole night and I thought it was it was sort of interesting because he allowed them to sort of hang themselves because yes. It, you know, it, it can also be, you know, like the audience will notice if it's a form of rescue, if you just keep kind of whining and appealing to authority instead of digging yourself out of whatever hole there is. That's absolutely true. And I think um, beyond that as well, you don't have a moderator in the room when you're the president, when you're talking to Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un or whomever. Uh, it was a good depiction of two people going at it and you got to see, get a little taste of, you know, what they are like in these highly stressful and high pressure situations yeah although i mean the the one thing i would say is that they're not there's not as much grandstanding in, in those meetings right because of course it, it, sure yeah there's not the audience there but uh yeah certainly like he can't there isn't going to be an international body that he could appeal to like that trump could appeal to as president to mediate 
uh, being insulted by the the German chancellor or uh, you know the Chinese premier. You know he can't just say like where you know he he, he can bellyache at the U.S. media, but even then there's no body above them that he can appeal to. So at best he sort of can go to his Twitter feed and, and hope that his fans abuse uh, you know the media or abuse his opponents, but he's not going to have that 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 luxury with foreign leaders. That's absolutely right. And and I think um, at the risk of using a completely overused trope in this election cycle, Hillary Clinton came across from start to end looking super presidential. I agree with that. But also, I, I, I feel like the best take on that was from David Gregory, the former host of Meet the Press, when he said that um, she stayed within herself, which is like what everybody says about starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. You know, he didn't try to do too much. He didn't You're really leaning game. on the play- sports metaphors this time, Jeb. What's it's, going on with that? Well, I mean, that really happens in, a, in American sort of politics. And it, it just the let's let's relate it to football, which is related to war. This is the sugar pill that you give your public so you can discuss politics in a public sphere. Yeah. You know, so baseball becomes like a duel or it becomes chess, you know, okay. and then okay. there are all the running analogies about exhaustion and endurance and stamina, <laughs> like uh, uh, like Trump said. So. So he, he, he said she stayed within herself, which is, you know, she wasn't trying to throw too hard out there. You know, she knew her limits uh, when she was out on the mound pitching. Uh, and then he said, she's a real steel magnolia. She looked presidential. <laughs> Beautiful. It's poetry. Um, the word that I would use to describe her performance after I watched it was... Uh, it's it's kind it's in the neighborhood of constraint. I guess it is constraint. It's personal restraint. It's self restraint. There were so many times when he was trying to bait her, uh, where she just didn't take the bait. And I was also particularly impressed with just. It, this seems like a weird thing to comment on, but it, it, we become so hyper aware of every element in television broadcast now. The composure of Hillary Clinton's face while Donald Trump was launching all these salvos, or or just talking, just making his point. She managed to strike this balance of um, not looking disinterested or disengaged, but quite beautifully neutral. Um, I mean, the quintessential example of how you can screw this up easily by a small thing is Al Gore in the first set of uh, debate that he had against George W. Bush when it got caught on mic that he was sighing during George W. Bush's um, answers, which a lot of people uh, think turned off some of those down on the farm Texans and people like that who really value politeness um, to Al Gore. And she, she really stayed in it the whole time. It was impressive to just watch her face the entire time that that was something that came through too earlier in the year when she or i guess last year i'm, I'm not sure what did what ha- year did it happen in uh <laughs> the the 11 hour benghazi testimony yeah that she gave, it was this year yeah where and it the the sort of impassivity is if that's the right term uh, uh of her expression for most of it made the few times when she like either exhaustion or emotion got a little bit the better of her or where she just sort of let something through because she wanted to, those became so expressive. So she had these little sort of exhausted smirks, Mm. but because they were happening at hour seven, eight, nine, the entire media and, and a lot of people just watching it recreationally had time to digest like what an exhausting and just sort of criminally stupid procedure this was. So what might have seemed gloating had it happened in the first five minutes, the, that little smirk when she, I think she was resting her, her chin in her hand. Yeah. Became yeah. Like 
this expression that almost everyone by that point shared. So it was as if she was giving permission to the audience, like you can breathe. And I was very human and relatable and like sort and of a great gif. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that was something similar happened uh, last night where, you know, she's, she's not responding uh, to Trump just increasingly going off the rails. And then, you know, at some point, you know, there, a couple times, some, you know, clearly she got an idea in her head and smiled a very genuine way. And, you know, her normal kind of on the stump smile is very forced and, and uh, you know, that's what gets a lot of knocks from from people of like, well, she's not sincere. Uh, but it's really hard to do that. I mean, there are very few people who can successfully do that. Oh, and absolutely. Ted Cruz was the Ted Cruz was the number two in, in the GOP, and there's not a single sincere feature to his face. Um, so like it, there, when she actually seemed to be having fun, like, oh lord, this is just too mirthful or whatever. Yeah, uh, and I that, mean the, that came the pro- through. So. The one that uh, I think I've seen most people reference was the shimmy, the, sh- the shoulder shimmy. There was an answer, and I, I, I wish I could remember offhand which um, question Trump was answering, but he kind of went from A to Z to B to Y to all over the shop. <laughs> and then uh, Lester Holt piped in and said, Hillary, your response. <laughs> and she, just, she couldn't help but crack up a little bit. She gave this little shoulder shimmy, and she said, okay. Because this was a woman completely in her element. She, like, right from when she stepped out, she just looked so confident and happy to be there she really she obviously was really well practiced and um everyone's been talking about how underprepared donald trump was i've i've got like a theory about this because everyone was saying that he was underprepared that was the message that was coming out of his camp now there were some Mm. other people who were saying that that was just a um campaign basically to throw the Clinton people so that they would get a bit of a false sense of confidence about the evening and now people were um, going oh no he definitely didn't prepare but here's the thing Jeb what if he did (laughs) what if he's actually spent (laughs) the last week preparing incredibly hard and this was the result of that no one's talking about that as a possibility but I seriously think that's what might have happened it immediately made me flash on when Homer Simpson tries to save the bowling alley and it has a smash cut to him reading a book called Advanced Marketing, and he's got the little half-moon spectacles on. <laughs> yeah. And then he gets frustrated, and it smash cuts to him reading Intermediate Marketing and yeah, with yeah. the spectacles on. He goes, ah, and then he goes to, like, you know, beginner's marketing, and then the last thing is him standing outside the bowling alley firing off a shotgun into the air. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, the last one that goes in the bin is marketing for dummies or something. That is kind of the perfect analogy because if you can imagine Kellyanne Conway uh, just like locked in a room with a bunch of experts and they're running through the trial runs. They've hired their mock Hillary Clinton to um, do the mock debates. <laughs> they're in there for like a week solid just sweating it out and that was the result that we saw. Um, I don't mean to be quite so glib or quite so glad because I do, I, I do really believe that for a job that's as important as leader of the free world you need to have two really good people fighting for it at a minimum like it doesn't serve anyone the public included when you've got one person who is vastly outclassed by another because it really should be a competition of um, ideas and temperament and uh, you know ability to communicate to the public a vision and, and to have that vision and when one person comes so woefully inadequate i you know it's very fun to watch it's been super entertaining but ultimately that's not the best thing for everyone no and, and it's not something that's the best for the clinton campaign and a future clinton administration either i mean it, it's 
I understand why uh, Clinton supporters and Clinton workers and surrogates uh, celebrated uh, today. Uh, you know, look, they work really hard and it's exhausting and it can be depressing and a grind. So when they have these moments of, of victory, like they're really going to give into it. Uh, but, you know, what, what, what the campaign itself is doing is, you know, almost undermining, uh, you know, its future too, because they, their argument is that Donald Trump is so unqualified to be president, so uniquely ignorant and ill-tempered, um, that there literally is no alternative. So when Clinton wins, right, you know, let's say, uh, you know, they, they, it's a triumph over nothing, you know? So you've basically given yourself this, at best, grudging mandate. And you can't come in and say, listen, our ideas are ascendant because you've actually paved the way for people are, you know, people are so afraid of this other thing. And that's such a low bar to clear. And, and yeah. it's one of those things that I, I wonder if they're... I mean, they're just so anxious about winning this election that this strategy must be done above all. But, um, you know, there there are all sorts of pitfalls to making Donald Trump so aberrant that Clinton has to win. And that's one of them. And the other being that by not focusing on the rest of the Republican Party and, and tying Donald Trump to the Republican Party and saying that he's a metastasis of the same disease that's running through all of these other people. What happens is she gets elected and all those other people that are there ready to oppose her and they are untarnished. And in fact, Clinton's campaign itself has done a very good job of distinguishing them from Donald Trump. So she's not had a victory over them. She has no mandate over them. And, you know, especially when they celebrate kind of apostate Republicans who are endorsing her, the implication isn't we're endorsing her because we're rejecting the proposals of our own party it's we're in rejecting donald trump which is who is so uniquely horrible and outside the mainstream that once clinton wins he's no longer a problem and we can resume everything as before uh the same sort of locked in opposition and ah god that's depressing it's a dark note and i would like to take this opportunity before we go to a short break to but a firm farewell to the three people who were staunch Republicans listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed your brief stay. Uh, your coat is at the door. So we'll, we'll stop down for a moment, have a glass of water, and um, talk a little bit more about the debate and dig into uh, some more specifics around it. Is that okay with you, Jeb? Yes, please. I do want to bring up the fact that you were the one that brought up the word super predator about young black youth. And that's a term that I think was a, uh, it's it's been horribly met, as you know. I think you've apologized for it. Welcome to the second of three parts of today's politics. Uh, Just a reminder to everyone as well, Jeb, I really want to paint a picture in people's minds of your situation right now. You've had by the sounds of it about six hours sleep in the last 48 hours and it's one in the morning for you right now yeah it's uh it's 145 it's fantastic and i'm a dude uh from new zealand who was watching uh the u.s presidential election first debate with about five beers under his belt within 120 minutes which um among my circles when I was a bit younger would have been deemed impressive now is just a little bit sad for a man my age at any rate um, as we continue to dig into the debate Jeb uh, 
before we dig into some of the kind of more policy driven parts of it because we've talked a lot about the kind of look and feel of the thing um, I just wanted to say that I now appreciate the benefit of not having Gary Johnson there I kind of lamented the fact that he got left out Um, I can't remember exactly what his national polling was but the threshold set at 15% and I think he was above 10 I think he was Um, at 12 12 right obviously a lot of people are uh, supporting third party candidates this year because um (laughs) because it's hillary clinton and donald trump but being able to see donald trump just against one other person and with the benefit of lester holt taking that back seat and also with the additional benefit of the crowd not being able to make a peep and Lester actually a couple of times uh, silencing them when they did make a bit of a rise at something was he did so the, he cool. Did the, he did the Roland Garros, quiet please. You yeah, know, he but. did. Dad, Dad really, he, he chastised the kids um, for squeaking up and I th- it was such a cool thing because it took all of the regular ch- Trump oxygen out of the room and I think I, I noticed this right from the start of the debate, and it might be potentially because I've done a few years of stand-up comedy, that Trump demonstrably is a guy who is energized and powered on crowd approval. And mm. seeing him right from the get-go, he did, like he, he looked de-energized in a room where no one could applaud. And I I thought it was super interesting because if you take that into the White House, that's most of the time. I know there's a lot of media and a lot of events, but the actual job is being in a room and making decisions with a few other very intelligent people. And he really waned. I completely, you know, I understand your point about stand-up. I don't do stand-up, but I did, uh, you know, like theater junk. And there's always that first minute adrenaline rush, like the fight or flight thing. And you're just, you know, trying to kind of, you know, making sure you're going through your material. And if you get a positive response, you know, you feed on it and it becomes a virtuous cycle. And he seems to get that from the crowd. And he does kind of what pro wrestlers do, you know, like they call it a cheap pop, you know, like where the guy comes out of the mic and says, it's great to be here in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, and and (laughs) the, the crowd goes like, holy shit, Cleveland, that's where I live. Yeah. And, you know, so... Yeah, but if if you don't kind of keep feeding that adrenal rush, you get the crash of like, well, I'm not in danger. I just need to curl up in the leaves here in the forest and I'll be fine. Yeah. And he gets that really kind of somnolent quality. So many of the things that I've read about people who've done deals with him is that he does have he does have a, a lower level version of that where he seems to feed off of knowing the person in the room that he has to placate or bully or cajole or kind of tease to get a deal done. Like he seems to have that preternatural capacity for singling out the one person who's capable of taking a no to a yes and making them feel like the center of attention or, and making them feel listened to and then reading the note, the tone in the room and then figuring out where to go next, where it's, you know, bullying or, you know, compliant. Uh, you know, so many people have praised him from that on, on either side of the ideological kind of divide. So I think he might really be good at that. It's But you're right about like the TV thing and the policy thing. Um, you know, when you're speaking from the Oval Office, you don't have an audience. I don't know what he's going to do. Is he going to go out to, uh, um, you know, the, the Washington Redskins Stadium and then... <laughs> Uh, oh, pardon me for using that term, by the way. I hope that doesn't, you know, some people are probably listening to that and really upset about it. But um, Hey, yeah, they I didn't mean, like, change the name, so yeah, it is what um, it is. But, you know, he's not going to do the equivalent of going like, you know, hello, Wembley, and 
than hearing the you know watching people do the wave as he yeah, kind of lays out credit whatever. credit where it's true i'm glad that you have uh, acknowledged that i and and you do have to keep reminding yourself this is a very rich man who yes absolutely got a huge head start but um you know he's still got all of his money he obviously has a lot of intelligence in particular areas in a certain set of skills um to do certain things does that qualify him to be president we're no. about to find out if the american people agree with that or not um but it seems uh pretty clear from the first debate that's that's not really the right skill set that he has but no good on you for um reminding us that he did get there somehow he does have those skills i just want to see donald trump catch a break you know finally (laughs) can we just lay off the dude like he's had a really hard time a really rough life um he hasn't been dealt a good hand and he's made the best of things with his paltry million dollar loan from his father and then obscene inheritance and whatnot you know when he goes into chick-fil-a they don't let him bring his own gold toilet you know, sometimes he's got to go on a throne that's, you know, a little bit lesser vintage or uh, molding, whatever you want to call it. Jeb, I want to ask you about a couple of the policy things that did come up. I've heard um, a bit of commentary of people being very, very disappointed that there wasn't enough uh, policy discussion in there. Chuck Todd gave such bizarre post immediate post debate aftermath commentary it was so confusing he he was saying i'm sure a lot of americans are going to be very disappointed with that debate um that there wasn't more policy which i think was a complete misreading of it and then you also made this incredibly daft comment on twitter that got a lot of traction um in a negative way uh where he said donald trump appeared to come in underprepared but uh hillary clinton appeared to be overprepared to which the inevitable response from the internet was Yes, wouldn't it be terrible if we had a president who was overprepared for situations they were aware were coming? Um, This is a future segment. I mean, I think because I can do, you know, five minutes on this alone. But like the the completely twisted double think that the, you know, the sort of beltway, you know, or the the D.C. to New York elite media access has to like tie themselves into to pretend they understand what real people care about is just fascinating oh it's like, there and i think it's also just they re- everyone wants a close horse race because that's what sells newspapers ultimately right i think they i think they want it i think it's really i mean and th- this is actually another discussion um you know i don't think anybody's except maybe fox is willing to bend the ethics that hard to get that result i mean this is a close race they have the most interesting candidate arguably in living memory it's a close As, race, but what? But how did we get to that point? I, I guess is more my argument. Like it's a close. I think it's a manufactured close race. But I, anyway, I mean, like the the, the larger point I, I just wanted to make, like you know, the Chuck Todds of the world, they they will see a very simple sort of like bit of data. You know, like this person said three bafflingly idiotic things, and then they, you know, maybe in a lot of cases, I don't even think it's like a macro view of, hey, how can we sell more airtime tomorrow or next week and keep people on the hook it's like it's there are four people on this panel or eight and everybody has to have a take and Mm. nobody else has staked this out holy crap i'm dying up here i have to have an opinion and you know somebody like chuck todd goes you know uh americans uh really liked what uh you know hillary clinton said about enjoying burgers but what if they enjoy turds And, and then everybody kind of yeah. is like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe heartland, you know, maybe actually like food is a really East Coast value, but people in the heartland, they're people in Missouri and they just like to feed shit into their mouths. <laughs> I like any off track discussion that devolves um, eventually to turds. 
it seems like <laughs> it seems like the natural place to to go. Um, I want to ask you though about a couple of policy things, Jeb, because they did yes. come up. Yes. Namely, the first one is stop and frisk, which I thought it was very interesting how it came up because basically Donald Trump was asked about, uh, and I, I can't remember the exact couching of this, but how he was relating to the black community and what um, he could do for African-Americans and what he had kind of learned through the trail. And he brought up um, increased stop and frisk seemingly on a national scale uh, and on more than one occasion as well, this was an unforced, I would call it an error. It wasn't like he was prompted to say it or anything. And I haven't, has this been something he's been saying in the lead up to the debate as well? Because I thought this was kind of a new idea of his. Yeah, it had been expressed in the previous week. And I think it's part of a larger phenomenon with Trump where I don't think he or anyone in his campaign, well, maybe he does because, you know, he's megalomaniacal, but I don't think anyone in his campaign actually thinks he's going to get a significant percentage of the black vote. So what he's doing when he says these things is this kind of palliative gesture that cloaks something that appeals to white voters in something that's supposed to seem color neutral. So he's saying, you know, to all the racists out there who think that uh, uh, black people are synonymous with crime. What he's saying is, I want to rescue these poor black people from themselves by weeding out the dangerous ones, because we know how many there are, right, from their community with stop and frisk. And I'm doing it for their benefit. And that allows the sort of, you know, I mean, he's still got his diehard voters, but let's say the undecided racists Mm. can say, people who, they like racism, but they don't really like what it says in the marketplace. Um, so they want to like they want him to seem not racist by by reaching out to the black community so they can say, listen, this is a very generous man. He's trying to rescue these people from the Democrats again and from voting themselves into more crime and penury. Uh, but they were too stupid and worthless to listen to him and they voted against their own interests anyway. You know, you know, he's not a racist. I'm supporting him. And uh, the fact that black people don't like him is black people's fault. Boom. <laughs> It, um, can you just for a brief moment, Jeb, as well, for people who are listening who might not know, and I, I certainly am not an expert on it, but what is the whole stop and frisk thing about? Well, it's part of uh, broken windows policing, which was um, a theory that if you've read, I think, um, oh, it's one of the Malcolm Gladwell books, um, the one before Blink, I think his first one. Uh, Tipping Point? Yes, yes. The t- uh, so uh, it was featured in The Tipping Point. Basically, the theory is, you know, you have these sig- uh, signals of decay in your neighborhood, broken windows that give people an unconscious sense that the neighborhood is of no value. So they start to treat it poorly and then, you know, more of a negative element moves in. But if you if you fix that and then you also bust all these minor infringements of the law, it will eventually roll up into bigger and bigger ones. So um, part of it was was you know, interdicting turnstile jumpers in the subway. Because if you arrest those guys, you put their fingerprints in the system. And then if they go commit a robbery later, you know who they are. Or maybe they've already committed a robbery and you arrest them for that and their fingerprints are in the system. So you get rid of them. So it's this sort of holistic approach to harassing people. And then Mm. part of that folded into that was stop and frisk, where you just sort of go intimidate citizens on the street. Or uh, you you go and you watch them until you feel that somebody is giving you probable cause to demand that they open their you know empty their pockets and open their purses. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that, uh, unsurprisingly, disproportionately targeted um, African young African American men, and then you know young uh, other non-white young men. Yeah, you, your um, race seemed to become probable cause at its exactly. worst bit, right? That was the issue. 
So um, and then, you know, what the right wing and a lot of the of the Democratic Party as well, to be fair, said was, you know, this worked. This did a great job because look how many, you know, the murders declined in New York Um, and look how, you know, it. You know, look what a great success story they were. They had two, you know, twenty five hundred murders or whatever, twenty two hundred that Trump cited in the debate stage, and mm-hmm. they got it down to five hundred. Yeah. The problem is, the crime rate went down everywhere in the United States, and yeah. it went down everywhere in the United States at the same time. And uh, it w- it began going down before that was the official policy of uh, New York City. So there's really no correlation between it and this this you know, just plummeting of the national crime rate. You know, New York went from death wish to, uh, you know, a Disney store in Times Square. So, um, you know, that that's the, the, the Which to, dispute to borrow, borrow another author of some uh, pop sign, pop psychology is from Freakonomics. Their theory on that was actually Roe v. Wade, that the yes. fact that uh, abortions became constitutionally protected meant that more under or unprepared mothers uh, could end their pregnancies instead of having to give birth to a child in terrible conditions and then basically raise a a bunch of criminals. Yeah, and that that article is still hugely problematic because they were... I don't buy that, but (laughs) anyway... Uh, stop and frisk kept coming up again and again in the evening and there was uh, a moment as well where uh, Trump tried to pull um, that card of using the super predator comment which Hillary Clinton made what in the early 90s or something? 96 I think. Which um, has kind of been taken out of context and wielded by a lot of people um, kind of yeah and in, in strange and unusual ways if you look at the actual context around where she made the comment um she was saying that there is a minority of people of um young black men who are super predators which was a terrible thing to say at the time and i think bernie sanders even called her out on it in this election cycle and said it was a racist term everyone knew it was a racist term at the time but um what has happened since then is people like uh, donald trump and some others on the right have have been wielding it as if she was calling all young black men uh, super predators which is a, a pretty important conflation to correct when it comes up but this was one of those things where I feel like he was trying to bait her into it kind of getting into the weeds with her and getting into like a real close quarters combat scenario where they would just be burning up time and it's like that old saying right um, never fight a pig because you you get dirty and the pig loves it yes and then the other the other corollary is if you're explaining you're losing yeah. And and I think he was really hoping that she would suddenly go, you know, get that sort of stuttery Jimmy Stewart thing. No, 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 no. You know, yeah. and then, like, you don't I mean, understand. I mean, I say hammered at the time. And I can't even remember how she diffused that because I was a, a couple of sheets to the wind at that point. But um, it didn't seem to land uh, nearly the impact that Trump wanted. Do you remember how that exchange wound up? No, I think at that point I was deep in a K-hole and I had my head up against the speaker. <laughs> um, no, I really do, I don't. I mean, my, my brain just started to fuzz out at certain points because you, can, you can't pay super close attention yeah. to these things um, you know, without losing a minute or two here or there. I just remember sort of we were talking about it and then we were gone. And I yeah. was sort of astounded. And I think the way that worked was, uh, you know, she she gave a very, you know, I do remember it was a sort of brief response, but uh, I think, 
you know, Sanders backers and the Sanders, uh, you know, sort of insurrection in, in the Democratic primary insulated her from a lot of this because all of her voters have heard her explanations over and over. And I mean, unfortunately, the uh, you know, the African-American community is kind of um, like they're just sort of going to vote Democrat and Democrats know it. So they, 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 you know, Clinton has made her apologies officially for it. Yeah. And she's had to explain her position before. And now yeah. I feel like she can just sort of nod to the audience and kind of go, this guy, you know, he's trying yeah. to pull this again. You know, you know me. And then they're in the camp. You know, they're not going to go anywhere. The, uh, the the one other thing I want to ask you about, though, which was interesting, which might have been one of the fuzzy bits where you zoned out, was there was a bit of back and forth on free trade, which was interesting because I think this is one where um, a lot of people can legitimize their love of Trump. And actually, a lot of uh, commentators have noted that there's a similarity between uh, policy-wise what Trump's been saying and what Bernie Sanders was suggesting as well in terms of um, future American policy with regard to international trade. And NAFTA was one of the bits of legislation that came up, which was the um, uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, which, uh, for, for those who aren't American, there was an agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the US. Is that right, Jeb? Yes. That, that Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton signed in, and I, I think... It was, passed it, under, it was passed under H.W. Bush, and then Clinton signed it. Right, right. And has it sort of been, um, would it be too broad to say that it's been universally accepted as being a bad thing for America in retrospect? No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, what's interesting is that there aren't a lot of people who were, uh, who were talking about trade. It was not, it was, that was such a consensus issue. I mean, even in the last election cycle, I mean, it, it is very odd that we're it's a, well, it's not odd. I mean, it makes sense that people are having the discussion, but it is so sudden that we're, you know, the, the entire orthodoxy of free trade being great is now a two party, is now a bipartisan issue with the actual final two candidates. Yeah, well, it, it is. It, it's interesting that you say that because it is and it isn't. And I think like this is when Donald Trump was having his best moments, actually, um, because Hillary Clinton does have a little bit of a nuanced position on this, which is hard to articulate. And it comes back to uh, her comments previously on the TPP, where she was Secretary of State and she referred to it at one point as the gold standard of international trade agreements. And has since walked that back to the point where I actually think she's removed stuff from the uh, book, I don't know if you call the memoirs that she put out, Tough Choices, um, I think in, in the, the versions that are coming out now, there's a section that's gone on that. But um, this this is an area where Trump has been singing the same song since day one, uh, and he has the benefit of not having been a politician that long. And Hillary Clinton's got far, far more of a murky and more nuanced uh, both voting history and set of opinions and, and vision on free trade. So I think, like, yeah, this, this is the bit, I thought, in the debate where Trump was making his best points and making the best go of looking like there was a real reason for him being on the stage. Yeah, and, and actually, let me clarify an earlier comment. Um you know, it was free trade was a, was the orthodoxy for sure. The Republican Party it always it has over the past several cycles been the orthodoxy of the final candidate in, from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that sort of undermines Clinton's credibility is she and Obama went back and forth talking about the flaws in NAFTA in two thousand eight. Yeah, and going off of that, you would think that they might have had a problem with it and pushed for legislation to amend it, and then it just disappeared. 
So people within the Democratic Party or that kind of maybe very small rump of uh, people in the Republican Party who wanted to talk about this have seen uh, the Democrats kind of, you know, just abandon it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's end that section there and have another brief break, Jeb, and we will come back with another short section to end on today. I think I did a great job and a great service, even for the president, in getting him to produce his birth certificate. Secretary Clinton. Well, just listen to what you heard. Welcome back to Politics, a uh, podcast experiment and experience where one stand-up comedian from New Zealand is attempting to understand the 2016 presidential election and is joined by a Rolling Stone political journalist who is right now sleep-deprived to the point of hilarity. Hey, Jeb. Hello, Tim. Thank you. I like that I'm introducing each one of these segments as if a huge amount of time has passed, like potentially days, just to throw people off course so they're not quite sure how we've recorded these. But um, I like to keep people guessing. Two bits of hot topical news. That is actually the same bit of news, Jeb. Uh, The Cincinnati Enquirer has just endorsed Hillary, which is significant because it's the first time they've backed a Democrat since 1916. Um, And just for a bit of context, Obama won the state of Ohio in 2012, but only by 3%. So Ohio is like, for our international listeners, one of the most important swing states, isn't it? Because it's very swingy and it's got a lot of delegates. And I think at one point, and this is shame on me for not knowing my election year cliches, because there are, uh, you know, like as goes Ohio, so goes the nation, I think, because it accurately predicted for X number of years. But then there are other, there are always these things like uh, if the Washington football team wins in the the Sunday before election day, then uh, the incumbent or the incumbent party wins. And then if the, the other team wins, then you get uh, like either a new president or a new party. Oh, yeah, and that stayed like that. true for X for a while, and then of course that's been wrong for two cycles at least. But people always say like it could come back. <laughs> <laughs> and the other uh, paper that endorsed Hillary Clinton in the last twenty four hours is the Arizona Republic, um, who have never endorsed a Democrat in their one hundred and twenty six year history. Uh, so that's significant, and that's in a state where Obama lost in twenty twelve by nine percent to Romney. So, I mean, that's even bigger. That's, that's pretty huge. Mm-hmm. Although, and this is something uh, I, I don't want to pretend this is wholly an original insight by me, but uh, anybody who's, who's never read him, I really recommend him. Uh, Charles P. Pierce, a writer for Esquire. Um, I think he goes, uh, his Twitter handle is ESQ Politics. Um, but he basically kind of has a recurring thing where he says, you know, I question the, the validity of, of newspaper endorsements uh, anymore. And... Uh, that wasn't something I'd thought of until I'd read him kind of banging away at that, uh, you know, year after year. And, you know, like I, I can look around in, you know, I, I have a liberal new- newspaper in uh, nominally red state Florida. And I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's it's always recommended the Democratic candidate in statewide yeah. office. And they I, they haven't won one of them, I think, since I've lived here, except for the incumbent Bill Nelson, who just keeps winning. I totally hear what you're saying, and the reason why I stick it on the podcast is not because I think it's going to lead people in a particular direction, but almost the opposite, that it's a weather vane for how dramatically different this election is compared to all others. Um, and you're absolutely right. I don't think news, newspaper endorsements are doing... Uh, yeah, they're not leading anyone to take action anymore, but it is pretty amazing um, these historic endorsements that are happening and just goes to underline how different 
this election is from previous ones. And I'll tack on some numbers to that as well, that in Arizona, which is traditionally not a swing state at all, Trump is currently winning, and I'm just looking at the real uh, clear politics average at the moment, he's winning by 1.6 points over Clinton. Mm-hmm. Although put together, they only equal 81, so that's a lot of third party. It's a lot of Gary Johnson, I'm guessing. Is that, that's where he, is that where he's from, Arizona? Yes. I imagine that? Yeah, right. Uh, he was governor. Yes. Uh, we were talking earlier, I know, uh, before the record, about... Uh, off you know, air, the, we call it, and the biz. Off air. Oh, that's right, zone. yeah. Oh, I love it. It's great. It's fantastic. It's really good. Um, <laughs> Are you we being Trump about? for a brief moment? <laughs> Is that the world's worst Trump impression? No, it's it, it like the sort of the... I don't know, some some sort of like WKRP type guy. It's really good. I like it a lot. Thanks. Oh, nice. Okay. Whenever I hear disjointed uh, superlatives just wandering out there by themselves, my head will forevermore just go to Trump. <laughs> but I, one of the things that's always great about when they have the libertarian candidate in there is you always get those weird moments of sudden sense. Um, and they're... Usually they're about foreign policy because both parties have gotten, you know, the Republican Party has been hawkish as hell forever and the Democratic Party to seem serious about war uh, has just been, you know, getting increasingly hawkish since Vietnam and then uh, 9-11. So you'll usually get that nugget moment when the libertarian and and the one that always comes up for me is, is 2012 when you had all the Republican candidates saying, well, we're going to need to just bomb Iran. We're going to need to bomb Iran. You know, they're not a democratic people. They have no respect for democracy. And then crazy Uncle Ron Paul just hops in and goes, well, you know, they had a president and we deposed him. Yep. You know, if you didn't want the Iranian revolution, why just set it up? You know, why, why did you back this repressive fuckhead, the Shah? And the Savak and torturing people. I followed Ron Paul on that election as well. He he was really chucking some stuff out there that no one else was talking about. He's a pretty cool guy. He is absolutely the proto Bernie Sanders of the. You call it of the right, don't you? Really, if it's libertarian. Yeah, and not to crib from Charlie Pierce again too hard, but he has a really great recurring line where he talks about uh, Ron and Rand Paul, called the five minute rule, where you know you listen to them and they will say something so you know, decent and insightful about your fourth amendment rights or yep. about, uh, you know, the, the, the unintended consequences of violent intervention in other nations. And for three minutes, it's sensible, it's sensible and wonderful, but at, yeah. you know, I was at five minutes rather. And at five minutes and one second, they just then go the completely civil off the rails. Comes up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's suddenly like, listen, um, there's absolutely nothing that can go wrong from drinking, you know, the equivalent of a kilogram of silver in a colloid <laughs> form. <laughs> I was going to say that, Jeb, before, um, you know, your boy Gary Johnson, because I'm now ascribing him to you because you've, you've got a hunger to have some libertarian views. He's so dovish, he doesn't even know where Aleppo is or what it is. So that's got to be on the very extreme end of the spectrum there between bombing the crap out of Syria, which I assume John McCain would probably want to do if he was in this cycle and not knowing where Aleppo is. Those are the two ends of this football field. I did hear a fun theory and, and, and somebody, if you go back and you watch the audio of it, you can totally get, I mean, it's, it's, it's very plausible that he thought somebody was saying a, like not Aleppo, but like a Aleppo, like one Leppo. Sure. And that maybe he's just thinking, what the fuck is a Leppo? Like, and yeah. I mean, I, I'm willing to grant him that much because aside from Hillary Clinton, I have no confidence that really anybody else like 
you know, in this race or in, certainly in the Republican uh, Party has a very clear idea of who's in Syria. Like if you told them that the Hmong people are, you know, close to uh, weaponizing, you know, uh, biological agents in Syria, they'd be like, oh, yeah, fantastic. And then you could show them, you know, <laughs> it, like actual Hmong citizen and. Uh, anyway, gonna wrap up on that that depressing <laughs> note of uh, shallowness in the field of international. Rel- it's not like I know, but then it's not my job to know. It is some politicians' job to know. Anyway, um, to leave on five thirty eight, the polls only forecast at the moment has got Hillary Clinton at fifty five and a half and Donald Trump at forty four. So that um, kind of shows what a. a massive change a debate can make well you know the thing the 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 538 poll i'm not going to get very uh, i'm not sold on that and i'm not trying to terrify all the you know democratic listeners out there and and comfort our millions and millions of uh uh, right-wing fans uh on here but uh if you look at what trump said in the debate uh, and this is something i believe uh cory robin or cory robin i'm I'm never really sure uh, how it's pronounced uh pointed out like what Trump was actually offering apart from you know his heterodoxy on trade was the standard conservative candidate uh plank i mean that if you look at at the positions that he articulated during the debate that's regular conservative and yeah. i i would not be surprised to see that you know you're going to get a spike after the debate and then the memory is going to fade and we're going to resettle in again in where the democrats should be demographically and mm-hmm. where the Republicans should be demographically. And, you know, apart from the histrionics of Donald Trump uh, from day to day, when he's been doing these sort of policy events, he's been getting a lot closer to saying, I am just, I am the, I am the Trumpy version. I am the, the huge version of a candidate and a, a platform that you're very familiar with. And so all this kind of, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll get a spike like this after a debate occasionally. Um, but uh, I, th- I think, you know, we've got 44 days to go and sure. people will, yeah. you know, people are going to forget a lot of people, not, you know, some people won't this dunking uh, yeah. moment and, and they'll, you know, kind of, re- I think, you know, we'll see them resume their roles. Until we have the second debate, which is on October the 4th. Um, hey, Jeb, I do, I've, I've, got, I've just had this idea now. It's just struck me. I, the reason why you know who I am is because I do a podcast with my friend Guy and the podcast is called The Worst Idea of All Time where we watch the same movie every week for a year and keep reviewing it. And we have a segment in that called The Shining Light where we try and find something good about the movie that we haven't mentioned previously for that week uh, to be positive. So I would like to mm-hmm. end the episode with something that you thought Trump did well at the debate, and I'll attempt to articulate one as well. Huh. And I don't um, mind going first to buy you some time. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought to, uh, to mine's focus very, on that, but yeah. Mine's very broad, uh, which may fuck you, but um, I'm going to do it <laughs> anyway because I can't think of another one. But in Somebody's got to do it. That's right. In terms of an actual crap the bed moment which i was definitely expecting and i think a lot of hillary clinton supporters were expecting as well um i don't think that was there like a a six second clip of him flying off the handle with anger it was um again a lot of little things a lot of interjections there's been a lot of talk about the interruptions that uh that he had but i don't think that there was that that moment of him completely flying off the handle 
And for that, with the low bar we have set for Donald Trump, he gets a thumbs up from me. All right, you, you, you bought me some time. Uh, and that's a good one, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, not the buying time, your, your shining light. My shining light, I think, is at the very end, like right after the debate, uh, when they asked if he anticipated disputing the results of the election. And he, you know, and, or no, that was in the debate. And he yeah. said no. And then when he was asked again afterward, he said no. And there was this, this is really hard to explain it. Um, and I'm, I'm going to get into some of the psych, armchair psychoanalyzing that I really did dislike from other people. Garrison Keillor did it and people were overjoyed at the column he wrote. And it really seemed to be psych 101, like you're compensating for this, uh, you know, and just this really kind of boilerplate stuff. But up until this point, Trump hasn't had to face off against anybody he actually respects. And, you know, he has been the alpha dog in every room he's walked into up until this point. And by the end of that, like, you know, he did not seem like that. He did seem beaten. And, you know, I think like on on one level, he definitely has respect for Hillary Clinton just because of the insane resume that she has. I mean, it's, it is a peerless resume. But she did dominate him. And, you know, he went back to this weird, like, oh, okay, well, you know, sure, we'll see what happens. But yeah, we'll, we'll do it. And look, I mean, this could be falsely clutching at some shred of humanity in him. Like, you know, the thing, the, we- the weird sort of anthropomorphized rag that's screaming on the floor of the white room in the last Harry Potter movie when he sees, like, what's left of the soul of Voldemort in the afterlife, right? But maybe I'm just looking for that. <laughs> but, you know, maybe when this is all over and he has to, res- he can resume being whatever his, is his version of normal, you know, he'll go back to being that person who can be a civil, uh, you know, and, and gracious human being around somebody that he can view as, you know, worthy. And I, I don't know if that's just... I don't know. It's probably a complete illusion, but just seeing that moment of like, oh, just yeah, own no, it, I'll, man. Just I'll, give I'll, him this. Give him yeah. this one thing that he was able to accept the outcome of an election. I don't think that's too much to give to the man. Yeah, this country has been here for over 200 years, and he was willing to suggest that he was on board with perpetuating it. There you go. And on that wonderful vision of sunlight, we will end this edition of Politics. Jeb, thank you so much for staying up. And um, you shouldn't be awake right now. So I hope whatever you need to do to get to sleep, you can figure that out. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, likewise, I assume, I I don't know much about the time change, but I assume in New Zealand, it's about three months past the US election already. And I just hope it looks beautiful. Yeah, I don't want to give you the outcome because it spoils it for the, for you guys in America, but we know what's up and uh, we're feeling okay. Let me just say that. Thank you.